If you could learn more about spirituality and how it can work in your favor, would you be intrigued? Of course you would. It's time to get real. This is Get Real Radio with your host, James Robinson. In our show, we'll interview fascinating guests with the intent of bringing you closer to who you really want to be. Get ready for some of the most profound radio on any airwaves today. Now, here is James Robinson. Welcome, everybody, to Get Real Radio. I'm your host, James Robinson, and today we have with us a man who has been at the forefront of the leading developments in medicine and spirituality for decades. His, and his name is Dr. Bernie Siegel. And uh, I just have to say, we've had some very, really important people on this show, but uh, I have to say that as far as influential people, people who have made a difference in the way health and healing have developed in this world, Dr. Siegel uh, actually has been named by a popular vote uh, of one of the top 20 spiritually influential people on the planet uh, by a review in London. And so this is not my marketing skills. This is something that has been recognized by people all over the world. Dr. Siegel uh, is an internationally renowned expert in, in behavior and, and self-induced healing, complementary holistic medicine, spirituality and consciousness and he actually was a founder and one of the uh, early pioneers of the mind-body movement in other words how does the mind affect the body and and vice versa so that and plus he's just an absolutely delightful human being so welcome to our show dr siegel thank you i got a question for you all right why are you James and not Jim? Because of my, I was named after my grandfather, mm-hmm. who was uh, a very, very successful businessman, and uh, he would not uh, allow people to call him Jim. And <laughs> but the the thing is, but my reason is is because of the energy associated with the name. The numerology and the energy in, in as, uh, Vedic astrology and numerology is that James is a very, very powerful name, whereas Jim is not. So right. I, 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 mean, I like the sound of the name not and not the sound of the name right. Jim. I, I mean, I asked you that not as a distraction, but, you know, part of what you were interested in, like how do I end up where I am? Why am I Bernie? I mean, it... it that's who I just felt I was, if you know what I mean. Uh, sure. And my mother liked Bernard or Bernard. <laughs> but to me, that's not who I was. And I think, again, it's part of, well, let me add something else that I think then people understand. I was visiting a friend at hospice who knew me very well. Um, and one day as I was leaving the visit, he said, Goodbye, Journey. <laughs> and I thought, wow. You know, I mean, he gave me so much therapy in that one word, goodbye, Journey. And I think that's, you know, the answer to your life, my life. I mean, and everyone's. We're all on a journey. And the problem is that so much of it is happening at an unconscious level. 
because to quote Jung, he said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So when you go to your mystic and fortune teller, they're reading you. You know, if they sure. quiet their mind and connect with you, then they're telling you what you're basically telling them about what you're preparing and creating. And that's what I've begun to realize, because even with you talking about spiritual, my latest book, The Art of Healing, I got an email saying it's up for an award. So I look through the email, you know, under the medical <clears throat> section, and I don't find my book. So I keep looking, and where does it pop up? In spirituality. Uh-huh. And that, I thought, it was fascinating. You see, I'm the doctor writing a book, and the people reading it don't see it as a medical health-oriented book. They see it in, in another place, in another category. And, yeah, it's different. You know, it, it's, again, like all the things Jung said and did, that never get talked about in medical school when they should so that we don't treat the result, the disease. We treat the reason, you know, the, that people are ill and what is happening that made them vulnerable. And uh, I began reading Jung and ultimately called myself a Jungian surgeon because of the way <laughs> I behaved, you know, in the hospital, things I did in the operating room, um, but nobody was against success. That's something I always point out to doctors, that if you go in and give a lecture, people get mad at you. Oh, you know, that's not valid. It's not statistically. It's a poor journal. Did you have a control group? You know, they can't, as one doctor said, I can't accept what you're telling me. And I was mm-hmm. telling him the truth, meaning about patients. So I wasn't lying. I'm telling him. But he can't explain it, so in his mind, he'd rather just reject it and not accept it. And I learned to be a storyteller. And I always say that to doctors, tell stories, because everybody has a story. And if something is successful, then you can get up and give a lecture about it. So I did things in the hospital, which I was considered strange and a little crazy for. And years later, my patients would say, it's so nice here. When I asked them why they do these things, they say it's hospital policy. And I would burst out laughing because they were things that I introduced and everybody, you know, the administration and the doctors thought I was nuts. The nurses who were taking care of the patients became my supporters because they saw the difference. I mean, I I can remember one nurse saying to me after surgery, um, your patients are refusing pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you that they are not hurting? And she looked at me like I'm nuts. You know, you're doing major abdominal surgery and they're not hurting. But they began to think differently and see the difference because of how I treated them, the environment, the operating room and everything else. And so they would then encourage other doctors to do the same thing. And so, again, even playing music in the operating room, I was called an explosion hazard. Because this goes back, you know, a number of years. We have gases in the operating room, which are explosive gases. And, um, you know, but I brought them in. I plugged it in. We played music. What happens? 
Nobody's complaining anymore after a week because everybody felt better. What happens after a month, every operating room in the building has a, you know, what was called a boom box, you know, to play tapes because everybody realized, hey, you feel better when you play music. And then decades later, a study was done at Yale which showed that if you played music in the operating room during surgery, the patient had less pain, the operation finished sooner, and the anesthesiologist used fewer drugs. So, you know, see, when the belief systems were altered, then the studies were done. Because when I wanted to do research, this is back in the 1970s and 80s, I was refused by all the major organizations from the government to the American Cancer Society. Why? Because you're nuts. You're crazy. Those things don't make sense. What good is going to a group going to, you know, do uh, to help survival or deal with feelings or play music or draw pictures or whatever? Um, but then 10, 20, 30 years later, the beliefs have changed and all the research gets done from studies on laughter to loneliness. Because, again, I would ask people, What's going on in your life? What's happened last year or two? I mean, these are questions that are in my first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. And doctors would say to me, what are you trying to do, make your patients feel guilty? I said, (laughs) no, I'm trying to get them to see what could have made them vulnerable at this time in their life. So again, loss, um, loneliness, financial problems, divorce, whatever, uh, you know, death of a child in an accident, all these things can affect the person because our immune function, see, our inner chemistry, you, you use the mind-body words on introduction, that our body chemistry is altered by our feelings. And the body also responds to what the mind believes. And I mean that literally. I mean, there's a recent book out um, called You Are the Placebo. Yes. And it's just full, you know, of wonderful stories. But that's what people have to understand. We're, we're not just the placebo. We're also the nocebo. You see, you can get <laughs> sick on the way to the hospital thinking about your treatment. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, well, let me, let me mention this just so people understand the power of the mind both ways. Uh, because I never forget this. I was speaking to a group of radiation therapists at a conference, and one of them stopped me in the hallway and said, boy, i got to tell you how terrible I feel. Maybe you can help me. I said, what's the matter? He said, I just realized, doing our routine inspection of the machine, that there's no radioactive material in it. They had repaired it a month ago, and apparently nobody put it back in. I said, you don't know what you're telling me. He said, I'm telling you I feel awful. I said, wait a minute. You are not stupid. So if you were not treating anybody for a month, don't you think you would have realized that? Nobody would have red skin. Nobody would have side effects of your treatment. Tumors wouldn't be shrinking. So I said, obviously, all those things were happening, so you thought you were treating people. And his eyes almost came out of his head. You know, I mean, it was just, oh, my God, you're right. Yeah, that's how powerful the mind is. And on my website, I have an article called Deceiving People into Health. Because I learned, (laughs) I did a lot of children's surgery, and I learned that the kids had faith in me. 
So I didn't mind lying to a child for their benefit, all right? Uh-huh. You know, I mean, just so people understand in simple terms, I wasn't denying their problem, but you could take an alcohol sponge, and I always tell the nurses to do this, rub the child's skin before you're going to draw blood or put an IV in and say, okay, this is going to numb your skin. It's a new kind of sponge that they made. You won't feel the needle. A third of the kids are hypnotized totally. They say, that's wonderful. Why don't the other doctors use it? The other kids will say, I felt it. It did. It did hurt. I felt that. But, you know, it's a different reaction, if you know what I mean. It, it's not filled with emotion. Oh, my God, a needle. And, uh, well, even the anesthesiologist would so often say, this will feel like a bee sting, as they were going to put the IV in. I'd say, excuse me, couldn't you say mosquito bite? You know, why impose that thought on people? Make it something a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And that's what I learned uh, from the kids, because kids were falling asleep being wheeled into the operating room. Now, why? I thought, what's going on here? Then I realized, you're telling them in the emergency room, you will go to sleep when you go into the operating room. Now, I'm thinking of anesthesia. But these are kids. They don't know what I'm thinking about. So Uh they would fall asleep and then get mad at me for picking them up to put them on the operating table and waking them up. I mean, the kids would start yelling at me, you told me I'd sleep. (laughs) And, um, you know, we'd laugh because uh, many of them would tell me what positions they were sleeping in. And I was trying to straighten them out and you know, ultimately, I said, I, I can't operate if you're all, you know, curled up on your stomach. Oh, okay, I'll turn over. But it was just so wonderful, you know, that it just changed the environment. And uh, even bringing humor in, you know, when somebody's in a panic and sure. saying, thank God all these wonderful people are going to take care of me. I thought to myself, if I tell them that they're all, hurt, that they're all wonderful, it's not going to accomplish a damn thing. So I said loud enough for everybody to hear, I've been working with them for years. They're not wonderful people. And the woman, after about 10 seconds of what is he telling me, she burst out laughing, realizing I'm kidding. And, the, and everybody in the operating room is laughing. And we became family. Yeah. You know, and, and so, again, what happens, see, when you're laughing? You can't be afraid anymore. Your chemistry. And just to make it scientific for a minute. Actors, this was done by a graduate student, University of South Florida, <clears throat> and his professor thought he was kind of nuts, but it was wonderful what it turned out. See, it changed his professor, because he was talking about how the internal chemistry and immune function, stress hormone levels, would change based on your mood. And what he did was get two actors, give them a comedy to read, and he drew their blood while they were acting out the comedy, Then he gave them a tragedy where the man has murdered the woman's husband and they meet. And he drew their blood during that interaction. And of course, what he found was the immune function went down during the tragic episode and was enhanced by the laughter and humor. And the stress hormone levels went up during the murder scene and down during the laughter. So... When people rehearse and practice and act as if the, they're the person they want to be, they can help change themselves. And too many wait for a life-threatening illness. 
You know, you're told you have two months to live. And I know a lot of people who aren't dead in two months because they go home and start living. I mean, one uh-huh. call, Carl Menninger, the psychiatrist, um, I sent him my first book before it was published to get his opinion of it. And he wrote back saying, Bernie, I was about to write a book called Ten Hopeless Cases. These are ten people, all of whom were expected to die in a short time, who are alive and well today, but I am not going to because you just wrote it. That was one hell of a statement and a compliment to me. And the thing I discovered was, which is sad, but it's, again, medicine, um, you know, it's like a mechanical trade. You don't call an electrician to fix your plumbing. And medicine has all these specialties. So when I wrote articles and sent them to medical journals, they came back saying interesting but not appropriate. Hey, I'm a doctor. I'm taking care of people. What do you mean it's not appropriate? I Uh sent them to where it was appropriate. See, psychology journals. They sent it back with another comment saying, yes, it's appropriate, but it's not interesting. We know all this. That's the sad part, that we're not treating the whole person. You know, we're treating organs. Uh, uh, You know, it drives me nuts when I read the ads in the medical journals. You know, I'm depressed, unable to cope. I went to see my physician. He prescribed the antidepressant. I feel better now. And I wrote the drug company in the New England Journal of Medicine. I said, excuse me, my family's killed in a plane crash. I'm depressed. The doctor doesn't even ask me why I'm depressed, what's going on in my life. He just gives me a pill. Couldn't you put another line in that ad and say, sit down, tell me what's going on in your life. Then prescribe the pill. And they canceled the ad. But, you know, to not focus on the person. And what I learned was, <laughs> sorry, I never stop, I know. But it, it's helping people. See, anybody listening to this, think about whatever your problem is in your life. Physical, emotional, doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be some life-threatening thing. You know, you could have a backache. But a migraine headache. Yes, you could have cancer or AIDS. But think if you said... How would I describe what I'm experiencing to someone else? See, not a diagnosis, not I have carcinoma of the colon, but what is it like to have that? Now, there are a few people who I really admire who will say, wake up call, blessing, new beginning, because they have redirected their life because of you know, their illness and accepting their mortality. And then from others, you hear confusion, roadblock, pressure, failure. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on with amazing words. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Siegel, I'm afraid we're going to have to take a break. So right. please hold that thought. Yes, and, it's a good thing to we'll, come back to. And we'll be right back. This is Get Real Radio with your host, James Robinson, and our special, very special guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you learned how to play the money game? There are all kinds of rules when it comes to money. 
Should I spend it now or save it for the ultimate rainy day? If I make a tiny mistake now, will it really affect everything in the long term? For the answers, tune in to Cultivate Your Financial Health with Wayne Firebaugh. You'll come away from each show with a better understanding of the rules of money and how it sets up your future. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time with a replay Saturdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ooh, Tanajan. Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Get Real Radio with James Robinson. We'd love to hear from you. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to mr.jamesmedia at gmail.com. That's mr.jamesmedia at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Get Real Radio. I'm your host, James Robinson, and we're talking to Dr. Bernie Siegel, who is a pioneer in, in what I would call the mind-body connection and exploring how the body actually heals. And one of the things I wanted to start off this segment with is a question to Dr. Siegel is, how did you go from a traditional pediatric surgeon um, to someone who is exploring the more mystical aspects of the healing process. All right. Let me, I just just want to complete, you know, what we said before the break, that when people use a word to describe what they're going through, to ask themselves if it's negative words, what else in my life fits these words? So just to give you a quick example, then we'll move on. A lady with severe migraine headaches instead of being hospitalized, went home when she answered me, pressure. It feels like pressure. And I said, what's the pressure in your life? She said, her marriage. And she got up and went home to straighten that out. Failure. Well, my body failed. That's not my question. Your life. Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. And the words that pop out of people, they were so thankful when I would ask them that question. You know, to say thank you, because then off they went to work on that process. Now, in terms of my change, it really came because I went to a meeting I thought was for doctors, run by a doctor, about how to empower cancer patients, guided imagery, uh, and so forth. I was the only doctor in the room of 125 people. That blew my mind. Not one doctor treating cancer patients came to this meeting. But my patients were there. 
and they sat all around me. And the one who changed and redirected me was the woman who said to me, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. Boy, that hit me. Because, you see, why did I change? They don't train you to be a doctor. I mean, think about Jack Kevorkian. If somebody had looked into his beliefs and desires and interests therapeutically, he might have run a hospice one day and not helped kill people and end up in jail. You see, why... They could have said to him, why do you want to be a pathologist? Why does death fascinate you? And, well, again, back to psychiatrist Carl Menninger. I love saying to people, um, you know, why did you become a surgeon? Oh, it's, I became a surgeon as a reaction formation to my destructive tendencies. I love cutting <laughs> people up, but I don't want to end up in jail. And they look at you like, what? <laughs> you know? But Menninger brought this up as a psychiatrist, saying, yes, there are people who pick professions for the wrong reasons. You know, they could be police, they could be surgeons, they could be anything. Um, you know, what's within them, and we need to understand that. But because I did it for the right reasons, I cared about people. I was an artist. I wanted to use my hands. I mean, it, I thought, wow, being a surgeon, put it all together. But I wasn't trained to be a surgeon in a humanistic way. You know, people died. People have complications in the operations. I was in pain. I mean, and I mean it. It, it was, you know, I was burying all this stuff inside of me. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was one of the ones who helped me. As I drew a picture of her. She said, Bernie, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? She said, Bernie, you drew a mountain with snow on it, but the page is already white. But you took a white crayon and added a layer. What are you covering up? And she got me to open up because I was. I was burying all this inside of me. And it was killing me. And let me give you, because you have a history as a lawyer. Let me give you a quote from a lawyer, which I think says it very well. Following a tragedy, he was thinking about what to do to help people. And then he said, I came to a conclusion that was eminently reasonable, totally logical, and completely wrong, because while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. See? Another mm -hmm. lawyer wrote me a wonderful letter. He said, I was told I had a 5% chance of living two years. Now, what would most lawyers do? Go home and die in a month. I mean it. You know, you're taking their hope away. But he was getting his car fixed, no coincidences, and he went into a used bookstore. And I say that because he didn't go, have to go into that store. See, his consciousness led him in there. And what does he find? Bernie Siegel's book. And he reads it. And he transforms his life, and his cancer disappeared. What's the unhealthy part? He said to his doctor, would you like to know what I did? The doctor said, no. I mean, that's insane. What I learned was to say to patients, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? You know, and some people would say, oh, I went home and I left my troubles to God. I mean, I mean it, those simple statements and a tumor disappears. But I learned what I call survivor behavior, that there are patterns to people who exceed expectations. 
So I don't try to get people to be immortal. I share with them. You want to live forever? Love somebody. It's the only thing of permanence. But I can also say to them, if you want to know what others who have done well have done, let me share this with you. Let me show you. See, then you can act and behave as they do. And, you know, it, it, I mean, on simple terms, it's like the kids and the animals. They're not worrying about tomorrow, next year, what's going to happen. They're trying to have a nice day. And that's very hard for adults. But yet, I know many who didn't feel well, agreed with the doctor when they were told they had a few months to live, and then started living, going to Colorado to die in the mountains, buying a house on the ocean and canceling the dress code at work, um, getting a dog, putting in a backyard wildlife habitat, and laughing more. Now, did those people die when they were supposed to? No. <laughs> I, I start laughing because... Um, I, I can't not share what happened. That when the, the fellow said, I'm going to Colorado to die in the mountains, I told his family, Call me when he dies. I'm coming to the funeral. I don't get a phone call for a whole year. And I was very angry at the family for ignoring my request. So I called up, and guess who answers the phone? And he said, to, <laughs> He laughed. He said, Yeah, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> you know? And, oh, and the lady who got a dog and all that, her letter to me, she was looking for help, what to do. Because she said, I'm so busy now, you know, I didn't die, and now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Where do I go from here? I told her to just take a nap. But, I mean, you know, it, it, does it happen for everybody? No, but it's worth giving it a try. See, not getting into guilt, shame, and blame. And that's something that a lot of people have so much trouble with. I could read you an email from this morning. I mean, this woman just can't love herself. She just can't. And let me read you this quote because I thought it was fascinating. This is a quote on my calendar from yesterday. Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. So I sent that to my friend, this woman that I'm trying to help. Because again, She's been hypnotized by the authority figures in her life. See, a quote. My mother's words were eating away at me and maybe gave me cancer. She dressed me in dark clothes so nobody would notice me, told me I embarrassed her and I was a failure. Now, when that woman developed cancer, she read my books, which her husband got for her, and said, thank you, you gave me permission to be the person I was meant to be, my authentic self. I told her, you didn't need my permission. But, but you see how she's hypnotized by her parents. And then she went out and bought this red dress and red high heel shoes that when I met her the first time, I didn't know how her husband let her out of the house. I mean, <laughs> it, it gave me a headache just to sit in front of her because, I mean, everything was so sparkling and bright that she was wearing. But when I heard her life history then I really admired, you know, what she was wearing and thought it was wonderful. Because, I mean, you could see her from a mile away, uh, just how her clothing glowed. But, you know, she was able to overcome, you see, the guilt, shame, and blame and the hypnotic message of her parents. And it is literally true that the child's brain up to basically the age of six is like 
a brain in terms of brainwave patterns of somebody who's being hypnotized. And so what your parents say to you has an incredibly empowering effect on the rest of your life. You know, if it's what I call mottos to live by, what a wonderful statement. And that's, again, how I was able to change. See, and not worry. What do other people think of you? You're supposed to be a surgeon. Look how you're behaving. Look what you're doing. But I had parents who loved me, grandparents who loved me, and a wife who loved me. So they put up with me and my spiritual journey. I mean, I shaved my head in the 1970s. I went to the barber and I told him, I've got to do it. You have to shave my head for me. He said, your sons know that you want to do this. And they came in here and told me that they would basically kill me if I shaved your head, that you embarrassed them enough already. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. It's, I'll come Friday afternoon, shave my head, and I'll leave town. I'll go away on vacation. Nobody will see me. So he did it, not knowing I was lying to him. But um, <clears throat> I didn't know why I had to do it. What was the benefit of it? People knew I was troubled and wounded, so they all talked to me. And I mean that literally. People lined up in the hospital, staff, patients, others, to talk to me because they knew I would understand what they were going through because I had something going on in my life where I wouldn't have done what I did. And as I say, this was in the 70s when the guys had their hair down to their shoulders. You know, that's why our sons were so upset. But what did I learn later? Reading Jung again. In one of the myths, a hero's head is shaved and he's discussing this story and he said, it's called a tonsure, T-O-N-S-U-R-E. It is right. what monks do. Right. It is a symbol of uncovering your spirituality. It's like going back to the baby again, the infant. And boy, when I read that pages about that, it was like, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now I know myself and, and what all this was about. And... Uh, so again, I just let that journey happen. You know, when you say that word, I keep thinking back to the hospice experience, but we're all on a journey and pay attention to dreams, to drawings, to, because that's how the consciousness speaks to us. Yes, I hear voices too. I mean, I've had incredible experience. I always say my life should be a movie. Uh, people think it's fiction, but... I was doing a meditation, a guided imagery in the class one day. And they said, you'll meet an inner guide on a path. And so, you know, I'm expecting Jesus, Moses, some, you know, well-known person to show up. You know, I'm thinking, I'm a doctor, so I'll get real class. And this fellow walks up and says, my name is George. And he had a kind of strange outfit on and a big beard. And, okay, George, so we talk. And... Oh, oh, I don't know, probably a few years later, I was speaking one night, and I realized that the lecture I was giving was not what I had planned. It had nothing to do with all my notes. I was just standing there talking as if somebody else was giving the lecture. When I was done, the first person out of the audience who came up to me said, I've heard you before, that was better than usual. <laughs> I, I agreed with her. The next person said, standing in front of you for the entire lecture was this man, so I drew his picture for you. And it's George, exactly what he's wearing and look like. 
And then a year or so later, I spoke at a Christian funeral on a Sunday morning. And uh, Al Gawarl, who is a mystic, uh, also knew the person who died. Matter of fact, it was the guy who called me Journey. And I spoke at his funeral. And so I was standing in the hallway after everybody had left to go to the cemetery. Um, and Alga came over and said to me, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, why are you asking? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. He said, no, it's because there's a rabbi standing next to you. And she described George. And that's when I understood why he was dressed as he was. Because he was wearing the prayer cap, um, you know, and the other garments that went with his role as a rabbi. And it was just incredible. And so, you know, I don't really prepare anything anymore in a sense. I know he's there and it's all within me and the two of us just let it go. And I have heard voices too. Um, the day my dad was going to die, a voice said to me while I'm out in the street alone, how did your parents meet? I said, I don't know. Then ask your mother when you get to the hospital. And I did. Those were the first words out of my mouth when I walked into his hospital room. How did you two meet? Just to give you the end of the story, your father lost a coin toss and had to take me out. <laughs> well, my mother's you know, stories, my father died laughing, looking wonderful. I mean, I thought he was going to change his mind and not die that day because he was ready. I mean, he told my mother, I need to get out of here. I mean, he wasn't enjoying his body anymore. So it was just absolutely incredible experience to watch him die looking so healthy when the last grandchild who said they were coming came in and was announced. He just took his last breath and left. Um, but that, that voice, and it has spoken to me at other times too. And again, I think it's from the collective consciousness. It's what I think happens when we have a near-death experience. You know, our consciousness doesn't end. Our body does, but our consciousness doesn't. And I think past life experiences are, again, the consciousness we contain and are impregnated with from lives that have preceded us. So, again, it may lead you to become a doctor, lawyer, plumber, um, you know, uh, all of these things. But if you carry within you the opposite of love, which is indifference, rejection, and abuse. Not fear, not hatred, but indifference, rejection, and abuse. Those are the opposite of love. And if those are within you, then you're going to do a lot of damage. And, uh, you know, think of the headlines we all read. Uh, you know, well, right going now, in right, excuse me, but right now yeah. we've got to take a break. So okay. we've got a lot to talk about in our last segment, but right now... Uh, this is Get Real Radio. I'm your host, James Robinson, and the very eloquent Dr. Bernie Siegel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. 
Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to get real radio with james robinson we'd love to hear from you please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's toll free 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to mr dot james media at gmail.com that's mr dot james media at gmail.com now back to the show Welcome back, everyone, to Get Real Radio. I'm your host, James Robinson, and we've had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Bernie Siegel. And I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Siegel about his work that he's doing with his wife, mm. Barbara, particularly about using humor and paintings and drawings and dreams to help people uh, heal. Yeah, one of the things that, um, well, Solzhenitsyn in his book, Cancer Ward, uses the term self-induced healing. You never hear a doctor say that. You know, they talk about spontaneous remissions and miracles. But the symbol of it, of it in, the, in his book is a rainbow-colored butterfly. And when I read that, it was like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. See, the rainbow, every color has meaning. But if it's a rainbow, your life is in order. The butterfly is a symbol of transformation. People will often draw a purple butterfly when they're ready to die. You know, the spiritual color. And that's why my book, The Art of Healing, the one I mentioned that just came out, uh, has 60 drawings in it. I was so thrilled that a publisher would do that because art therapists don't know anatomy. See, they see it in a psychological perspective. But again, Jung interpreted a dream, diagnosed a brain tumor. I used the drawings in the hospital to diagnose my patients too because they would show anatomy even though they didn't know what they're drawing. I mean, a tree could look like a brain, all the folds in the brain. Uh, a stream could be a blood vessel or a bile duct. I mean, when I know anatomy, I look at it and say, okay, that's what they're drawing. And so, or my, you know, common instruction would be draw yourself, your disease, your treatment, your immune system, eliminating the disease. See, not killing as Mother Teresa said, I won't attend an anti-war rally, but if you ever have a peace rally, call me. So right. I'm trying to get people to not empower their enemy by having to kill it and being a failure if they don't. But you see, when you draw the devil giving you poison, yeah, we've got to talk about that because I don't think that's a good treatment. 
That's what a woman drew. The doctor giving her chemotherapy is the devil giving her poison. And somebody else draws it as yellow energy flowing from the bottle right to his cancer, you see. Mm-hmm. And now, can I reprogram people too? Sure. When the operating room is a black box with nobody taking care of you, you can picture yourself four or five times a day going to the hospital, having surgery, waking up hungry, comfortable, feeling well, and going home quickly. A week later, your drawing is totally different because your body has been, you know, retrained to see this in a different way. And on a personal level, too, psychiatrist Caroline Thomas years ago, because I began to run into all these people, you know, who said, no, you're not crazy. When I was thinking, I was discovering things that others knew. Um, that she said, I could tell, because she used to have medical students draw pictures and then look them up 35 years later. I could tell what diseases they were going to get from the pictures they drew. Just on simple terms, if you didn't have arms or hands, she said, those are the people who are going to have psychological problems. See, how do you get a grip? How do you reach out? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and they're like men will draw, I'm only a head. You know, that's like the lawyer. I'm only thinking. Yeah, one male engineer, I said, draw me a picture, please. And he handed me a page of instructions. (laughs) <laughs> on how to draw the picture he was supposed to yeah. draw. That helped him change. His family was so grateful because that really was like knocking him on the head. And uh, again, the men are into the practical, the doing. See, there's no point in living if I can't do something. And they say that while their wife and children are sitting in the room. Women live longer because they are into relationships. Even having a dog in your house will extend your life after many serious illnesses because of the relationship. But again, the drawings, as I said, there, there were books out that I began to study. Um, life Paints Its Own Span by Susan Bach, B-A-C-H. She knew Jung. She was in London. I went to visit her, learn from her, and brought her pictures of anatomy because she didn't see those things. And she said Jung was fascinated by the somatic aspects. I said, because he was trained as a doctor. You're not. Um, the Secret World of Drawings by Greg Firth, and now mine, The Art of Healing. They all contain, and, and Greg's he's a, was a, a Jungian psychologist, so his drawings are more about psychology, but I wanted to point out also the, not only the psychology, but the physical. And, and one more, how numbers. That was something my wife began to notice that she would count bricks, trees, you know, and say to people, what about this number? And was getting incredible answers. And I thought it was crazy at first, but then I realized, no. And then I came across Jung. Numbers have quantity and meaning. They're discovered and invented. And I began to say that to people, too. And a reporter came to my house. I could tell she was an intellectual lady who didn't like the fact that she had to interview me because she thought he's way out there, a little crazy. So I said to her, you know what? Can you draw a picture first uh, of yourself and then uh, I'll be done with the patients and we'll talk. She came in, handed me the picture, and it's in the book. Behind her, I mean, she has a really big head, which confirmed my diagnosis. (laughs) But behind her is a clock with one hand pointed at 12. And whenever I show this in a lecture, I say, what do you think is the worst year in her life? And I see 
So what I said to her to shake her up was not, why is 12 significant? I said, what happened when you were 12 years old? And she burst into tears and told me about sexual abuse. And then, you see, our interview is a whole different thing. And that's the part that I've learned that the, you know, it's like you dream. You don't decide what you're going to dream tonight and you don't decide what you're going to draw. So I have drawn our home and family knowing what I'm supposed to do. So it really looks everybody's wonderful and loving each other and been amazed at times when one of the kids was driving me crazy. He wasn't holding hands with his brother on either side. And I thought, how did that happen? But again, it's my consciousness blinded me when I did the drawing. But when I come back hours later to look at it the way I would somebody else's drawing, I got a message from it. So I say this to people all the time. Draw a picture. What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What treatment should I have? And then look at it the next day, and you'll get a lot of information from it because you'll be looking at it as if somebody else drew it. So you know where the right place is and the right thing to do is because you'll see it there. And as I say, every color has meaning. Um, even the page, there are quadrants that are past, present, and future. These are all things I learned from people like Susan Bach, but began to see, well, again, like I said, where are you going to live? A lady put trees in the upper left uh, and some mountains. And um, where did she end up? Up in Vermont, exactly like the scene she drew, uh, you know, a year before. And that's her consciousness that's creating the future and knows where she's headed. Well, let me ask you, what if, if you could change anything about uh, how we parent our children, um, you know, teaching people how to be better parents, uh, because from what I'm hearing is that most of what we have to wrestle with in our, in our adulthood is, is basically planted when we're children. And, you know, if you had four minutes to tell parents what they need to do to raise a healthy child, what would you tell them? Well, the key is to have your child be loved. And I'm going to read you something that one of our sons sent us in a minute. But when I say that, it's models to live by and love. You don't have to like what they're doing. The same boy who's letter to me, I'm going to read to you, said to me years ago, Dad, you're getting a divorce. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you yell a lot. I said, we have five kids. I said, when I don't like what's going on, I make noise. But I love you and I love your mother. Oh, okay. And off he went, see? And another one came to me and said, you don't love me as much as my, you know, other, my sister and brothers. I said, what are you talking about? You have five children. We should each get 20% of your time. I don't get 20%. (laughs) I said, excuse me, your brother is driving us insane, so he gets 40%, but I love you. See, and then he wasn't worried about being in the last room at the end of the hall, because he was there because he was no problem. You know what I mean? Whereas the brother who's driving us nuts is, you know, sleeping right off the kitchen so we can watch him all the time. But that's why they grew up, they could communicate. And then the mottos to live by really came from my parents, who because of their troubles learned. What should I do, Mom? Do what will make you happy. See, then you're not taking somebody's life away by imposing your desires on your children. Ma, I had a terrible day today. 
It was meant to be God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. That used to drive me nuts. But I realized I don't know the future. My mother's right a lot of times. See, supposing I called spiritual flat tires. You get a flat tire on the way to the airport. You miss your plane. And what do you learn? It's one of the planes that crashed or was blown up. So what do you say now? Oh, thank God. Hey, for that flat tire. My father's father died of tuberculosis, uninsured, six children. They went through hell. And I heard my father say one day, one of the best things ever happened to me is my father dying when I was 12 years old. When he was done, I said to him, Dad, what the hell are you talking about? He said, it taught me what was important about life. And I remember him saying to me one day when I needed money to pay tuition at college and medical school, he said, I said, I feel guilty. Keep asking you. He said, look, if I don't want to do it, I'll say no. But I've learned that material things are to help make it a better world for everyone. So he's always out there lending money to people, and that's one of my genes, too. It drives me crazy sometimes, but it's hard to say no because I'm trying to help people. And so was he. And, uh, you know, and being a doctor was that, too. So my comments, my labels. Oh, let me read this to you first. This came on July 8th. He's an adult. Dad, I just wanted you to know that all my life you've been my hero. From the time I was a little boy throughout the whole, my whole life, all the times you came to school for show and tell and brought my pets in and all the classes you visited with body parts that fascinated and put in awe the entire school, all the pets you let me have and all the understanding and love you gave me, no matter what all the people you put back together when they were broken. I was always so proud to be your son, and I always will be. I don't think there's anyone else in the world that will ever know what it means to have a father like you and a mother like mom. I just wanted you to know this, so if some day comes that I can't tell you how much you both mean to me, you will know because I put it into words way before that day came. And then love. And I get more books from people to make comments on, you know, who are abused by their parents, sexual and physical and psychological. And when I got this, it was like, wow, I really wrote a foreword for one of those books and put this in it. Because, I mean, this, what I call it is winning the lottery of life. You know, I mean, I've helped people. I've been on the spiritual, you know, healers list. I have a child who loves me and his mother. And that's what life is about. So I won the lottery. I don't need anything else. And that's part of my daily mantra. Uh, it, you know, it's thank you for everything. I have no complaint whatsoever. There's more in it. But Lao Tzu said, be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. And when you realize nothing is lacking, the whole world belongs to you. And that's how I conclude. Because I really feel that the whole world does belong to me because of what our children have said. And I may add, you know, when you say about parenting, have pets in the house and teach a reverence for life. Our home was a zoo, um, bro breaking lots of zoning laws, exotic pets, pets, you, you know, creatures you weren't supposed to have in your home because we were being used by veterinarians to rescue all these animals when people okay. didn't know what to do with them. 
Well, my and, producer is telling me we're out of time, okay. Dr. Siegel. And All right. I uh, can't thank you enough, and I hope you'll come back because I only have about four to five lifetimes of questions I'd like to ask you. But okay. this is this is Get Real Radio. I'm James Robinson, and our guest today was Dr. Bernie Siegel. again for tuning in to get real radio with james robinson please join us again next friday at 2 p.m eastern time 11 a.m pacific time on the voice america variety channel this week open up your heart and look inside your spiritual self